So we, we are starting a series tonight um, called Tough Stuff. And what we want to do is engage with things that you guys are going through, questions that you guys are being asked, or questions that maybe you have, things that you're just like, I, I don't really know what I think about this. Um, and we are starting out tonight with uh, the topic of abortion. And so let me just, two quick things to kind of preface before we start. One, like, why are we doing this? Like, Ryan, do you just, do you just want to make it weird for everybody? Are you angry? Like, what's going on? It's none of those things. Um, I want to do this thing for a couple of reasons. One, in some old school churches or even just some regular churches, the pastor preaches from this thing called a pulpit, okay? That's the name of the big wood thing um, or glass thing or metal, however cool your church is. Like, that's the thing that they preach from. And pulpit is like a weird word. What is that? It's actually a nautical term, so you can impress all your friends. A pulpit is actually the part of the ship, the front of the boat that hits the waves first. And that's what a pastor preaches from. And, it's, and to me, that symbolism is real because it shows that the pastor is to take the Word of God, or we as, as children of God are to take the Word of God and let it slam right into whatever's going on in the culture at the time. And that's what we want to do. We want to talk about race. We want to talk about politics. We want to talk about marriage. And not just talk about it to be, to be angry about it or to start fights over it. We want to show what this book says about that. How this book redeems those things. So that's the first. There's that scene in Titanic, um, where if you were allowed to watch Titanic growing up, where uh, Leo says, I'm king of the world. He's on the pulpit. That's what that is, okay? And here's the other thing, too, that I want to share with you before we get into this. One of the reasons we're doing the Bible at the end, um, when Christians talk about some of these sensitive subjects that require facts and resources, a lot of times they only look at resources that back their own viewpoints. Does that make sense? They only look at resources that back their own viewpoints. But listen, we all do this, okay? Christian, non-Christian, we all do. We all love our own narrative, okay? We love hearing that more than we love hearing other people's. And so just so you guys know, as we get into this, as the history and the science behind some of this with abortion, I didn't get any of these statistics from like oldangrywhitechristian.net or whatever, right? If that website's real, I'm sure it is hilarious, but I didn't get it from there, okay? That's not where any of these sources are from. The, the, these things that I'm going to tell you are out there for you to Google and to research on your own, okay? So please, and here's the last thing. If I say anything tonight and you're just like, I don't know, about or like, I don't agree with that, or I'm not comfortable with that, let's talk at the end, okay? Like after the service, like come up to me and let's talk and correct me where I'm wrong or, or let's engage because I don't want this to be me coming off the top rope kind of thing with you guys, right? I want us to talk through this and learn through this together, okay? That's my goal with this series. Does that make sense? Cool? Okay, you guys are going to be awesome. Tonight we're going to look at three things. The legal history of abortion, um, thrilling, I know, the science behind abortion, and what the Bible says about abortion. So, in order to understand abortion, we need to understand a woman most of you have probably never heard of. Her name is Norma McCorvey. Just show of hands, who's no, who is, you don't have to answer, who's heard of Norma McCorvey? Who knows Norma? This is going to be a good night. All right, here we go. So in 1969, a woman named Norma McCorvey was 22 years old, divorced, homeless, and pregnant for the third time. She sought to have an abortion in Texas, but this was illegal at the time. 
An adoption agency connected her to two lawyers fresh out of law school who were eager to challenge the Texas statute on abortion. Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington were the two lawyers' names. Weddington, who had traveled to Mexico a couple of years earlier to have an abortion, was seeking a class action, I just want to be sure I didn't collapse, was seeking a class action lawsuit against the state of Texas in order to legalize abortion. The lawyers needed a representative for all women seeking abortions, but not really all women. This representative needed to be young, poor, and white. Poor, because a rich woman seeking an abortion would not sway public opinion. Nobody likes rich people, come on. White, due to race relations, tragically at the time, a black woman's not going to get any traction in the news in the late 60s. And the reason I bring this up is because sometimes what we'll hear, and sometimes maybe what we think, is that the beginnings of, now this wasn't the beginning of abortion, this was the legalization of it, but the legalization of abortion in America kind of is romanticized sometimes. And what I want you to see, and again, look this up, but what I want you to see is that like so many movements in our country's history, this was very calculated, okay? This was very doctored and carefully manicured. And here's how I know. After meeting with her at Columbo's Pizza, so the two lawyers, Coffee and Weddington, meet with Norma McCorvey at Columbo's Pizza in Dallas, they agree on using a pseudonym for Norma McCorvey for the case. A pseudonym is a fake name, and her fake name was Jane Roe. Maybe you've heard of Roe versus Wade. McCorvey, or Jane Roe, now faced this, now, now, now the face of this movement only met with those two lawyers twice. Once for pizza, a second time to sign what's called an affidavit. An affidavit is what is used when a witness doesn't appear in court, okay? It's a legal testimony so that your statement can be used, but you are not required to appear. So now follow this. Jane Roe, the woman behind Roe v. Wade, never appeared in court. She was never actually in a courtroom. And there's evidence that she wasn't even largely sure exactly what happens during an abortion. And it's important for us to see this because so often when we talk about abortion, we speak about the rights of women and the rights of women are put first. And listen to me in the pulpit right now, the rights of women are incredibly important. More on that at the end when we get to the Bible, amazingly. But what's ironic and tragic about Norma McCorvey's story is that the abortion movement, which largely focuses on the rights of women, Norma McCorvey, the woman used for this, was used and tossed aside, used for political legal gain, and then pushed aside. And here's how I know that. Norma McCorvey, her own testimony, actually found out about the ruling that she is named after, not in the courtroom, but months later in the newspaper. Never found out about it in person, never spoke to the lawyers again. So that's the ruling. Let's talk about this ruling in Roe v. Wade. The ruling of Roe v. Wade is not abortion is legal, okay? And it wasn't a slam dunk ruling either. Roe v. Wade is one of the most highly scrutinized and criticized Supreme Court rulings in history, and not just by the right, okay? So let me show you. Here's the ruling, and I'm going to try to explain this as best I can, so just hang in, okay? The Supreme Court under Roe v. Wade stated basically, under the 14th Amendment, No state can enforce any law which hurts the privileges of United States citizens. 
like the right to privacy. No court can enforce any law that hurts your privileges like your privilege of privacy. You can't make a law that hurts their private right to have an abortion. It hinges on privacy. They also cite the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment says, and this is really in the Constitution, it says, just because the Constitution doesn't say you have the right to do it, that doesn't mean it's actually forbidden. In other words, just because it doesn't say you have the right to do this, that doesn't mean it's illegal. And you can already start to see where this kind of gets murky. And the ruling is this. States saying that people cannot have an abortion is a direct violation of these two amendments. Their privacy to do it under the 14th. And just because it isn't listed in the Constitution, that doesn't mean it's illegal to have an abortion, which is the Ninth Amendment. But here's the deal. That privacy is a big problem, and here's why. The Supreme Court in their ruling, they gave virtually no further explanation to what this privacy means. And here's the bigger problem. There is no right to privacy mentioned in the 14th or the 9th Amendment. Now, it's alluded to in the 4th Amendment, but that's not what this is used for. Now, of course, there is privacy. Of course, there's a right to privacy. But to make an explicit law about a subject that's not explicitly stated in the Constitution is tricky. And because of this difficulty, the Roe v. Wade decision that legalizes abortion was not unanimous in the Supreme Court. One of the justices who dissent says this, uh, this is Justice Byron White, I find nothing in the language or history of the Constitution to support this ruling. This is Supreme Court, this isn't me, this is Supreme Court justice who's on the case, he says this, I find nothing in the language or history of the Constitution to support this ruling. The court has simply created a new constitutional right with scarcely any reason or authority for its action. Now, that's an old white dude who doesn't like abortion. Let's go to the other side, okay? One of the guys on the Supreme Court who voted in favor of this is a guy named Harry Blackburn, okay? His clerk, his assistant, is a guy named Ed Lazarus. So, so this is what I'm trying to tell you. Even legal scholars who agree with legalized abortion, I'm about to quote from you from a legal scholar, so not me, a legal scholar who agrees with legalized abortion. He says this, as a matter of constitutional interpretation, and judicial method, Roe v. Wade borders on being indefensible in court. He's saying you cannot, and this dude is in favor of abortion, and he's saying you cannot defend this ruling using the Constitution. And he's clerking for one of the dudes who did. Last one, the Harvard Law Review in 1973. One of the most curious things about Roe v. Wade is behind its own verbal smokescreen the judgment on which it rests is nowhere to be found. This is them saying it's not in the, I don't know where this came from in the Constitution. And again, this is not me telling you, this is not 32-year-old, no experience with children at all, male Ryan explaining this to you. This is the Harvard Law Review. This is a legal scholar who's in favor of abortion saying, Legally, I don't know how this happened. Legal and historical. Let's look at scientific briefly and then we'll get to the word. 
And again, this is not from whitechristianscience.com or whatever, okay? Right? Again, another hilarious website, I'm sure. The Mayo Clinic, at the instant of fertilization or conception, the baby's genes and gender are set. So at the instant of fertilization, at the instant of conception, the baby's genes and gender are set. If there's a Y chromosome, your baby will be a boy. If there's an X chromosome, the baby will be a girl. BBC Health, just five weeks in, so barely a month, five weeks in, major organs begin to develop, heart, lung, kidney begin to develop, retinas, the part of your eye that is sensitive to light, has begun to develop five weeks in, not five months. Week six, the central nervous system, the spine, the stomach, the intestines, and a heart begins to beat. Six weeks into the pregnancy, a heart is beating in your body that is not yours. Basic structure of the body and the major organs begin during the first 12 weeks. In 2014, 92% of abortions were performed during the first 13 weeks while this is happening. Well, Ryan, you're kind of trying to skew the numbers. Where did you get this from? It's on Planned Parenthood's website. Right now in our country, literally right now, if a woman is driving to an abortion clinic and gets hit by a drunk driver on the way and the unborn baby dies, she can charge the driver with manslaughter of her unborn child. It's called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act from 2004. The driver can go to jail for killing the baby that the couple can legally abort at the same time. So when it comes to the legal system, it seems confused at best when it comes to abortion. Last one. Meet a woman named Margaret Sanger. Has anyone know, Mar uh, heard of a Margaret Sanger? In the early 1900s, you know her better than you think. In the early 1900s, Sanger was arrested for handing out pamphlets that discussed, among other things, now some of it was good, STDs, etc. But among other things, her pamphlets discussed what she called birth rate restriction. Sanger was especially concerned about how, now listen, Sanger was concerned about how rapidly immigrants were, and refugees were having children in America. That's her like axe to grind, is how often immigrants and refugees are having children in America, especially poor ones. This is a quote from Margaret Sanger. The most urgent problem today in our country is how to limit and discourage the birth of children who are mentally and physically defective. For immigrants, those least fit to carry on the human race, they are reproducing far too rapidly. You may not know Margaret Sanger, but you've heard of her. You know her better than you think. In 1921, she founded the American Birth Control League, which in 1941 was renamed the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Margaret Sanger is the founder of Planned Parenthood. And let's, let me, this is why I tell you that, because Christians get a lot of flack for the Crusades, which is like in the 1100s, and for not taking a bigger stand against slavery and segregation and the rights of women. And you know what? We should get flack for that. And we're going to talk about You just wait till week three. We're going to talk about all that. But none of my atheist science friends who believe in evolution want to talk about Darwin. 
And here's why. Because Darwin's belief on evolution led him to believe in what's called superior race theory. And his book on the origin of species was used by Hitler to justify the Holocaust. Those who believe in evolution, it's interesting, the experts who believe in evolution try to stay, they love Darwin's science, but they stay away from his politics. But his science is what led to his politics. Very few pro-choice people that I know actually understand the factual history of Norma McCorvey and how she was treated. And we all know even less about Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood's founder, and what she wanted abortion to actually be used for. If we're going to use our histories to bash each other, we can, but we all need to get in line. Maybe there's a better way forward. What does the Bible say? Does God see what's in the womb as a life? Now here's why. The reason I've waited so long to use the Bible is because maybe some of you don't see the Bible as your main source of influence. And listen, I'm glad you're here. That's awesome. That's okay. I think the Bible is the best source of influence. But if you don't, if you don't, we've talked through some science, and I'm not a scientist, like horrible. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a legal scholar, okay? But here's why I bring that up. If your trust is in science, that's good. If your trust is in history, that's good. I encourage you to put the same historical, scientific microscope up to your own views that you expect Christians to put up to theirs. If you're going to hold Christianity to the knife of history, we all have to be prepared to do that. So what does the Bible actually teach? Turn to Exodus 21. We're going to do some Bible hopping. So stretch, don't pull a hammy. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 24. Exodus 21, 22 to 24. And I'm going to read it, and then we'll talk about it. Here we go. Exodus 21, 22 to 24. When men are fighting together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm... The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. First of all, this is where we get the phrase, an eye for an eye. Did you know that God was speaking of the unborn? So this baby, here's what's going on. You've got two men who, it's a very like Dr. Phil situation, if you even know who that is. Like there's two men fighting and a pregnant woman gets in to break up the fight and in the struggle, she is harmed. Okay, does that make sense? So this baby is inside the womb at this point. It's not born yet. There's no name, there's no gender, there's nothing. And if it lives, if it's forced prematurely and it lives, then everything's okay. The one who started the fight will just pay a fine. But if this unnamed, unknown, unborn baby is forced prematurely and dies, what does verse 23 say? You will pay life for life. So follow this. He says, no, even though it was in the womb, violence was done to it from outside the womb, causing it to die, and you will pay life for life. This, this, what's going on in the womb is valued and seen here as life. Turn to Psalm 139. 
Psalm 139. Psalms is in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 139, verse 13. So a couple of them. Verse 13. Psalm 139, verse 13. David says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Let me read it one more time. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My grandmother is the nicest lady on the planet. Her name is Juanita. She's not Hispanic. I don't get it, but she's, the, she's like the best lady in the world. She's like in her late 80s, and she, like a lot of grandmas, is a big-time knitter, okay? It's like her thing. My grandma's the nicest lady in the world. She's yelled at me one time in my life, and it's like scarred me forever. She was like, it was like 9 in the morning. I was like a little kid, and she's like knitting, like getting her cross stitch on, doing her thing. I know those aren't technically the same thing, but you get it. Like she's knitting together, right? And I'm like running through the living room, and she goes, she goes, hey! And I was like, grandma. Like I was like shocked and like taken aback. And I was like, what's, and I was like grandma, what's wrong? And she goes, and she goes, be quiet. And she points at the knitting and she goes, I'm working. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay. So she's working. But listen, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Think about all the things that happened in the womb during the first few weeks that we discussed. Go sometime and Google what happens in the first three weeks of gestation in the womb. All the cells that have to go together. All the molecular foundation that has to be laid. It's much harder than knitting, right? God is knitting you together in your mother's womb. Meaning, and here's what I mean. It's not just a cool like Instagram knitting you together. Like he's focused. He's working actively. Isn't it interesting? Now this is crazy. How does church kids of the world, how does God create heaven and earth? What does he do? He speaks, right? Through his, no, you're good, Kelly. That was great. You put it out there. You went for it. He does it with his words, right? He creates the moon with his words. He creates mankind with his hands. Do you see that? He, like one of the commentaries I was reading says that God creates the world almost by remote control. He doesn't do anything. He says it and it comes into being. But when it comes to Adam, what does God do? Reaches into the ground. Eve reaches into Adam. Infants in the womb, knitting together. There, there's, there's hands being used here. We are astounded, as we should be, by, by, by the galaxy and by the solar system. But God seems to be putting far more attention and glory and focus into creating us. He is locked in when he is creating you and me. Psalm 139, verse 16. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. So already God is seeing these things. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of the days of my life, when as yet there were none. In your book was written every one of them, the days of my life, when as yet there were none of them. Meaning, he's got your life planned out before it happens. If he values you enough to plot out your life before you were born, that's proof that he values you before you were born. Does that make sense? Another one. We got two more. Ruth chapter 4. Ruth 
chapter 4. You may have to use the table of contents on this one, and that's okay. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. And when I find it, we'll get there. Ruth 4.18, and listen, while you're turning, that's totally okay, but you can track with this, so don't worry. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. You get the key word, I think, right? So fathered is in my version. Your version, it may say born. He was born to him. He was born to him. Uh, King James, anyone out there? Begat, okay? Fun SAT word. The Hebrew word in Ruth chapter four that I was just reading for fathered, for born, okay? For begat is holid, okay? H-O-L-I-D, holid, which means, it has a double meaning. It means to father, okay? H-O-L-I-D, it means to father, but here's the other meaning. It means to cause to bear, to cause a woman to bear a child. It means to impregnate. Now, why would the word for father, to father a child, and the word for impregnate in the Hebrew language be the same word? Impregnate doesn't mean that you're going to have the kid. But to the Hebrews, it did. To those who wrote God's word here, it did mean the same thing. Because in God's mind, if someone was going to get pregnant, then it was obvious and natural that that pregnancy would end with a child. If you're going to impregnate someone in the Hebrew language, it's naturally assumed that you will father that child. That you will have to, to become pregnant is to have a child. That's why father and impregnate are rooted in the same word because they're two parts of the same coin in the Hebrew language. Here's the last one. Wow, we have flown. Here's the last one. This like blew my brain when I read this this past week. And Brian and I were talking about it yesterday. The Exodus narrative. Okay, in Exodus, you know, Exodus is like 40-something chapters, right? But the actual Exodus, like Prince of Egypt, shout out to Prince of Egypt, the movie, like the, the actual, the plagues and all that is Exodus 1 through 15, okay? Exodus 1 through 15. At the beginning of Exodus 1, Israel is in Egypt, and they're having tons of children. They're just reproducing crazy rapidly. The fertility is insane. And it scares Pharaoh to death because he's afraid that all these people are going to grow up and overcome him. Tons of children are being had and Pharaoh wants to stop it. And as he starts to kill all the newborn babies, right? Kill all the, firstborn, all the newborn sons specifically. Do you know who stops his plans? The women of Israel. And the women even of Egypt. The, the, so first of all, we have two midwives who are, whose job is to help deliver babies. They lie to Pharaoh to protect the children. Who puts Moses in the basket? His dad, the head of the family? No, his mom. Who draws Moses out of the basket? Who draws him out of the river? Pharaoh's son, the next in line? No, Pharaoh's daughter. Throughout the book of Exodus, God calls Israel 
my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son out of Egypt. Let him go, and Pharaoh won't let it happen. He wants to kill them all while they're in Egypt. But as Israel continues to grow and cry out to God with all these plagues happening in Egypt, the last one, now think about it, you got the women at the beginning, you got the birth going on, the plagues are happening. The last one of these great events is the parting of the Red Sea, where the water splits, or can I say the water breaks? And once the water breaks, God's firstborn son passes through this narrow opening into a new day. And once this firstborn son passes through the water and comes out into the new day and the new light, in Exodus 15, there's a closing song to close out the Exodus narrative. And it's started by Moses, but it's not ended by him. It's ended by Zipporah and the women of Israel. The story begins with the women and ends with the women. It is, this is a birth narrative, highlighting and praising children and women the whole time in the womb of Egypt during the plagues or birth pains God's firstborn son is growing, and Pharaoh is desperate to end this growth, but God would not allow it. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And all throughout the Exodus narrative, you have God's firstborn son basically being raised by women, being saved and rescued by women. This is the redemption narrative. And it hinges on birth and what women are doing to continue to help God's story. By the way, Jesus' longest conversation in the New Testament the longest conversation we have on record of our Lord Jesus speaking real words to people is not with Paul or James or John or Peter or Moses or Elijah. It's with the Samaritan woman, a cast-aside, used-up, neglected female character. When we say, when we hear that the Bible denigrates and and destroys women, we need to be very careful. And we need to ask our friends to look at Christ. And we need to ask our friends, when you look in the Old Testament, when women are used up and degraded, does it ever go well for the cultures that do that? It's always a disaster. It's almost as if God is trying to show us the horrors that happen when we look down and denigrate women. He uses women to save his people in the book of Exodus. My friend, my, my wife, Kristen, has a friend. There we go. My wife, Kristen, has a friend named Kara. True story. We'll close with this. Kara has a deep spiritual struggle that some of us all share. She's allergic to gluten, okay? It's big. Be praying for Kara. It's tough. And so Kara was allergic to gluten, and then she got pregnant, and they went to the doctor to run the tests and stuff. And the doctor comes back in, true story, and says, well, congratulations. And she's like, for what? And he says, you can eat gluten now. And she's like, what are you talking about? I've been allergic to gluten my entire life. But now that she's pregnant, 
her body, and the doctor says, now that you're pregnant, your body is going to adjust to feed the baby inside the womb. Her body was adjusting to cater to the infant. God has designed the very biology of the female body to care for the unborn. Why? Because He cares for the unborn. The gospel, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, for while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for us. If Christ really did give his life for the helpless, we commit blasphemy when we take the life of the helpless. So abortion is not only violence towards someone else, it's a perversion of the gospel of Jesus who laid down his life to help the helpless. It's the polar opposite of everything the gospel stands for. But we also have to remember that Jesus' longest conversation in Scripture, his, arguably his most famous parable of forgiveness, is to a woman who thought she had gone too far, who thought she had crossed a line that there was no coming back from. Another one of his famous ones is the woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Over and over and over, Christ's kindness and goodness and forgiveness is at the forefront. And it needs to be that way with us too. Abortion is not an issue because people are not issues. Christ saw them as people and we should too. We need to engage with our neighbor the way Christ engaged with his, with love and compassion and care. But we need to know that our God is a God of history. So we need to fairly look at what history teaches about this. Our God is a God of science. We don't need to be afraid of that. We need to go to science and see what it says about this. And our God wrote the Bible and we need to use the Bible first and foremost and cling to it. So let's pray together.